Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. We are always so happy to have Kenneth C. Davis join us here on the show. I would have Ken on every week if I wasn't afraid of completely abusing his kindness. He's one of our favorite historians and guests. He's a man who takes the events shaping our modern world and always gives them an historical context, always proves that current events are rarely current. He is the author of the Don't Know Much About History book series, In the Shadow of Liberty, one of my favorite books ever about slavery and many others, including More Deadly Than War, The Hidden History of the Spanish Flu and World War One, and his most recent, Strongman, The Rise of Five Dictators and the Fall of Democracy. Memorial Day and Juneteenth are now behind us. It's time for the third leg of uh, what Ken calls the Triple Crown of Historic Holidays. Kenneth C. Davis, happy July 4th to you. Uh, we are supposed to pursue happiness. That's what the Declaration tells us, John. It's right there. <laughs> Good evening. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Although I have to be honest here and say that um, the events of the past few weeks uh, haven't have me feeling too, um, I don't know, sanguine, optimistic yeah. about life, liberty, or certainly the pursuit of happiness. These are dark days for our republic, and I really surprised myself by saying that. I used to always be a person who loved history and talking about history and how wonderful bringing the insights from the past can be, but we are really, in the words of another uh, song that you probably know, neck deep in the big muddy. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. I mean, you know, I began the show talking about the anniversary of the Bowers v. Hardwick ruling on the Supreme Court, where only 36 years ago, a court led by Byron White and uh, Rehnquist and Sandra Day O'Connor criminalized private sexual activity by gay men. It was only 36 years ago. That was the law of the land, and it took 19 years for that to be overturned. And now today, 36 years later, we see the Supreme Court essentially telling the EPA, sorry, you can't do anything to regulate well, power and plants course, and protect the health of Americans. It's, uh, I, I haven't read the full extent of, of the EPA ruling. Uh, that was one of several rulings today, like in the past few days, that have really had a lot of heads spinning. And I always preface any discussion of the Supreme Court and all of these rulings by saying I'm not a constitutional scholar and I'm not an attorney, um, but I do know how to read and I know how to read the Constitution and the Declaration. And uh, that's what most Americans are expected to do, be able to read and understand these things and understand yeah. what the past has to do with the present. Um, I would add to your point about the the Bowers decision that in the now somewhat notorious 
uh, concurring opinion written by Clarence Thomas in the Roe v. Wade decision the other day. He talked about how this would uh, impact, perhaps, make us reexamine. He mentioned three cases, Griswold, Lawrence, mm-hmm. and Obergfell. Yeah. Um, Griswold, of course, for those who aren't familiar with it, but you will be, um, Oh, yeah. They basically made contraception legal in America to married couples. That was uh, the distinction at the time. Um, that was only in the 1960s, early 1962, I think, John, um, that contraception uh, was, right. was uh, made legal. The Obergfell decision he alluded to was the same-sex marriage decision. And the Lawrence decision is another important one that relates to the case you've just mentioned, it was the law that overturned sodomy laws, specifically in Texas, and really was very, very important step in overturning uh, anti-gay laws around the country and led the way in many ways to the decision that allowed same-sex marriage. So Clarence Thomas really said, well, let's open the the Pandora's box here and, and you know, look at all of these things. Curiously, he didn't mention the Loving uh, decision, mm-hmm. which was you in 1967. That, uh, the Loving decision, for your guests who may not know, was a decision that said that states could not ban interracial marriage. Uh, at that time, many states, including Virginia, had such laws. They were called miscegenation laws. And Loving uh, versus Virginia overturned those laws. Of course, Clarence Thomas um, could not have married his white wife in Virginia in 1965. Um, he is, of course, a black man married to a white woman. Um, he did That's not right. include Loving in that list of cases that he singled out, even though they all hinged on an interpretation of the 14th Amendment. So, uh, but again, we're, you know, this is constitutional scholarly stuff, but folks, our, um, well, a lot of people have been saying for a long time that um, things are the the rug is being pulled out from underneath us. The pillars of our democracy are starting to tumble, and I think uh, a lot of people are finally, you know, really waking up to that. And this is not something that happened two years ago, or four years ago, or six years ago. This has been the the uh, this is the culmination of a long. Very, very well-funded and very, very well-organized uh, uh, assault, not just on on the courts and some of these decisions, but on the the underpinnings of of legislature around the country. And the other decision that the court said it was going to take up next year uh, is a really scary one because they're going to be looking at how much leeway states essentially have in determining. Uh, the electoral rules in each state. And um, that's a scary one to me right now tonight. It's very, very scary. And, you know, it seems like that's going to be the next path in how uh, the American right finds a way to chip away at one person, one vote. But I could talk about this with you all night, Ken, but I also really do want to talk about the declaration because it is, I think, increasingly a very misunderstood document. And we've talked in the past about July 4th and your appearances here. And, you know, we've talked about whether the promise of Jefferson's declaration has has lost its luster. Our political divisions seem to challenge our founding ideals. Our divisions are threatening democracy more than we ever imagined. Do you think it's possible for the U.S. to recapture what Lincoln called 
The Mystic Chords of Memory? The Mystic Chords of Memory, The Last Great Hope on Earth. I mean, he has said an awful lot of things, and I, I certainly, last best hope on earth, for, forgive me. Uh, I, I, my optimistic, uh, forward-thinking, progressive self who wrote Don't Know Much About History more than 30 years ago and uh, at a time when uh, the Soviet Union was crumbling, the Berlin Wall was falling, apartheid had been defeated. We thought, you know, democracy is triumphant. We still had a lot of work to do, but uh, things seemed to be on the march. And Jefferson's ideal that he had voiced uh, nearly 250 years ago in Philadelphia, and we can talk about all of his contradictions and flaws, and there are many, uh, was this inspiring document that not only led to the birth of the United States of America, but has inspired uh, independence movements around the world ever since. Yes. So I, I think we have to go back to that. And to me, the the, the opening words, and, and Jefferson, by the way, um, was a brilliant writer in many respects. That's why they asked him to do this. Um, but a lot of these ideas, of course, were borrowed from what was going on around the world at that time, not uh, just in the United States, but certainly in Europe, the, in, the period known as the Enlightenment, uh, the Age of Reason, where these ideas that kings and, uh, and churches are in charge and nobody else has anything to say about it was also tumbling down. Jefferson voiced these things in, in an eternal way. And uh, I think that it's always good to remember that he said that these truths are self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Those ideas were so radical and important at the time, and they still are important, John, that um, we do have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We are all created equal, and certainly we do believe that a just government must govern with the consent of the governed, and that's where we are at this incredible turning point in our history right now. Just a little a quick some fun trivia about Please. the 4th of July. Okay. Um, of course, the, the war had begun uh, in April 1775, a full year and a few months before. Um, this document didn't start the war. Uh, the, the fighting had already started. George right. Washington had already been appointed by the Congress and had gone up to take charge of the army in uh, outside of Boston. Uh, so this was the the fighting had already begun. Uh, early in 1776, Thomas Paine had written this brilliant piece called Common Sense, explaining to the American people why they should be independent. And in June of 1775, the Congress is meeting and things are have really gotten to the point where they're going to have to make a decision on this. And on July 2nd, the Continental Congress actually votes on a resolution of independence. Uh, that's what, uh, what caused John Adams to go home that night and write a letter to his wife saying, 
the day, the second day of July, 1776, mm-hmm. will be the most memorable ever. It ought to he be really solemnized with pomp and parade, <laughs> with shows and games and sports and guns and bells and bonfires. Um, he was uh, thinking that July 2nd would be the day that go really down did. in history. Yeah, he missed that's, it by that's... two. <laughs> I think it's an amazing one. Um, and of course, he and Jefferson themselves both died on the 4th of July, 50 years to the day afterward, afterwards. Yeah, and which... many people at, at the time certainly thought that the, the, their death coming on that day, 50th anniversary of the signing, of the, I, sh- I shouldn't say signing, of the adoption of the Declaration. There's a little confusion a lot of people have about the adoption and the signing. Most of the men who signed that document, including John Hancock in those big uh, letters, um, didn't sign until August. Uh, the text was uh, decided on July 4th. By the way, Jefferson, and well, we should discuss this, had written things that Congress changed. Uh, he wasn't happy about that. He sat for two days, actually, while they picked over his words. And That's as a right. writer, I can tell you, we don't take kindly to people sitting around picking over our words. We think they're quite you know, fine just the way we, we, we write them. And Jefferson fumed. And finally, though, they, they vote on this. And um, it then goes to a, a printer and is read the very next day in Philadelphia to cheers. Um, but the, the document as we know it was not signed until August when um, That's it right. was prepared. Where was the phrase United States of America first used? It really is in this document. And, wow. and that's right at the top of uh, when you see the the declaration in that beautiful parchment version, you see the declaration of these United States of America. Um, and so that is the really the first formal use of it. The King of England had been sent all sorts of letters and back and forth, and there were negotiations and hope that a war could be avoided. Even though it had already started, it was kind of at a standoff. And um, the King was really not uh, a person to be negotiated with, and he had basically <laughs> said no to every entreaty that was made of him. Um, but Adams himself, John Adams, who was one of the committee that drafted the the declaration along with Jefferson, John Adams said about a third of the people were in favor of independence, uh, about a third uh, wanted to remain loyal to uh, to Britain, and a third were in the middle that didn't care one way or another. Their lives were That's not right. going to change. Whoever was in charge, um, sort of like now, the, the, yeah, very much like now. Um, common sense. I mentioned this pamphlet, extremely influential in in, in bringing around people uh, to the idea that yeah, this was a pretty good idea. We should be in charge of ourselves. And then the declaration itself had had a tremendous impact. People really did. Uh, read it and understand it. Um, but by the way, I mentioned that Jefferson had written a draft and Congress changed it. It's really important that we discuss one change that he, that was made. Yes, they deleted I know an entire say. paragraph that Jefferson included in this long list of charges about why the king was such a tyrant. He had said that the king of England was keeping uh, was responsible for the slave trade and was keeping America from ending it. This was actually not true, um, but Jefferson's declaration is propaganda as well as this very important document in the history of democracy. Um, And so that wasn't true, but Congress was not going to have any mention of slavery in the Declaration of Independence. So it was cut out. 
I had the uh, wonderful experience recently. If you go to the New York Public Library, they have an exhibit called Treasures, and you can see Jefferson's handwritten draft of the Declaration of Independence on display there. And you see this this section that he had included that was then taken out, where he is criticizing slavery. Of course, this is the contradiction of uh, of the whole period and the whole Indeed. declaration that Jefferson, a slaveholder, an enslaver, writes this critical uh, uh, piece about slavery into the declaration. It's taken out. Um, Forty of the 56 signers were either enslavers or involved in the slave trade. Uh, the second piece I saw at that same museum exhibit, and if you're in New York, it's really worth going to see at the main library on 42nd Street. There's a bill of sale uh, dated also in 1776, not long after the Declaration of, uh, of Independence is, uh, is adopted. It's a bill of sale for a young girl named Jenny, who's purchased by her father. A man purchases the freedom of his daughter, and that document is there in the same room that Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. Wow. And it is this extraordinary reminder of how we cannot escape this history when we talk about the history of this country. And so when Jefferson is talking about all men are created equal, we know he's talking about men, and he's not talking about black men. Um, right. We know that he's talking about uh, rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He's not talking about the rights of uh, enslaved people, and perhaps not the rights of women as well. Um, so it's really important to remember that, but still the words have held true for all this time. How many of the signers of the Declaration, Ken, owned enslaved people? Yeah, I've, I've counted 40, and because there's, there's a little discrepancy about one of them, 40 of the 56, and not all of them Southerners. Um, so we have to be clear again that in 1776, all 13 of the original states, the 13 colonies uh, previously, they all had slavery. Slavery was legal throughout the country. Uh, New York had probably more enslaved people than uh, some of the southern states did. Uh, that's you know, not something we, we do a very good job of teaching because we don't teach about slavery, and that's another issue right. uh, we, have, we have to deal with. But, um, <laughs> uh, so 40, 40 of the 56, and Jefferson himself writes when, when he's asked uh, when he talks about taking this piece about slavery out of the Declaration, he says it was taken in deference to those Southerners who enslaved, uh, owned slaves, as well as those Northerners who were making a great deal of money uh, transporting them. Uh, I don't know if you know the play 1776, uh, kind of an old chestnut of a play that gets redone every once. But there's a great song in it called um, Molasses to Rum to, yes. uh, to, to Slaves. It talks about this, this trade and how uncomfortable it is for these northerners to, um, to confront the reality that uh, this was what was driving the country's economy at the time. Um, so this is completely woven into our history, and we can't really talk about American history without acknowledging that. And that's why Frederick mm. Douglass gave one of the most famous speeches in history on the 4th of July, and he 
shocked his audience by saying, what to the slave is the 4th of July? That's right. And the president of the United States, Millard Fillmore, was in the audience when he said such a thing. Um, pretty, pretty audacious uh, uh, fellow, Frederick Douglass. You, you can't separate the two. And, and Ken, we've only got a minute left, but I, I would be most remiss if I didn't ask you, in spite of our divisions and in spite of the historical ignorance so many Americans wallow in, what ideas, when you look at this document, still strike you as radically profound? Well, I think that the I come always come back to, yeah, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness it doesn't guarantee happiness. And Jefferson, by the way, changed a very important word that was used by other writers of the time. Uh, the word had been the pursuit of property. Jefferson was That's looking right. for something bigger, uh, and he t- and he changed it to happiness, not in the sense of happiness as a you know an, a puppy, but happiness in the sense of fulfillment and and realization and and having a place in the world. So that's a really important idea. We are entitled to pursue happiness, but right now, I think with what we're facing, the most important. Uh, idea, I think, is this notion of the just powers coming from the consent of the governed. And he then goes on to say that when any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter, to abolish it, and to institute new government. Um, So that's kind of, I think, where we are again at this moment. Uh, Again, almost 250 years later, uh, we are wondering if the form of government has become destructive of Kenneth the end, C. Davis. and what do we do? Thank you so much. It's always a great pleasure to have you on the show. I could have you on every night to talk about this stuff. <laughs> Everyone needs to go to don'tknowmuch.com, and please do yourself a favor and load up on Ken's books. I personally recommend Strongman and In the Shadow of Liberty. Thank you so much, and happy Fourth of July, sir. Thank you, John. Go pursue happiness. I'll do it right now. I'll I'll actually pursue advertising revenue. We'll be right back. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So Leonard Cohen famously wrote around 80 draft verses on the first pass for Hallelujah, including one legendary writing session on the Royalton Hotel in New York City. Hallelujah has been performed by, they think, over 300 singers, ranging from the iconic John Cale and Jeff Buckley and Katie Lang versions to the lesser heard Bob Dylan and Bono versions, and of course, the Shrek soundtrack version (laughs) um, by friend of the show, Rufus Wainwright. Now, Sony Pictures Classics has released a remarkable, moving film that is about creativity itself, Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song, which examines the poet and singer-songwriter Cohen through the lens of one song 
and how it extrapolates to his entire life. Leonard Cohen approved the documentary just before he turned 80. It's inspired by our good friend Alan Light's book, The Holy or the Broken, Leonard Cohen, Jeff Buckley, and the Unlikely Ascent of Hallelujah. The documentary was produced and directed by Emmy Award winners Dan Geller and Dana Goldfein. It is one of the best films you will see all year. Like Spielberg's Lincoln, it uses one incident in a great person's life to extrapolate a broad view of their entire existence. It's a movie about the power of expression, and it's a real pleasure to welcome you both to SiriusXM. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank we can you. leave now because uh, I, my mom and dad would be thrilled with this, and <laughs> that is generous and uh, well appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, I think that might be the first time that our names and Steven Spielberg's name have been uttered in the same. Well, I mean, I, I thought of Spielberg's Lincoln quite a bit because the whole the whole framing device, and I guess Tony Kushner gets credit for it, but of Instead of telling a traditional biopic, instead of saying Leonard Cohen was born to an affluent Jewish family in Canada and then did this and then did this, by taking one achievement of that person's life, in this case, hallelujah, in Lincoln's case, the 13th Amendment, you can extrapolate the person's entire story through it. And so right away, it's such a great way of telling his story and defying conventional documentary tropes. Yeah, it really allowed us to uh, just jump off in a direction that we felt was fresh and new and yet still get at the essence of who Leonard Cohen the man was. But as you say, to not do it from cradle to grave, which it was freeing. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it allowed us to in you know, jump in there and start when he was just about thirty and was and he announced to the world for the first time that he was a singer songwriter in addition to a celebrated poet and novelist. To be able to do that and tell someone's life story is a gift. And you cover the childhood and you cover the great final tour at age 78. Like it's all here, but it's all in service of the story of this unlikely song on an album that was rejected by the label in the yes, U.S. Yes. that became an unlikely anthem and, and in many cases a, a deeply misunderstood anthem for many people. <laughs> well, it's a very complicated song. The The song contains contradictions in every couplet, in every line there are contradictions uh, and those lines can be read in many different ways. There's the, the obvious literary way of reading it, but then there are spiritual ways and there are liturgical ways of reading mm-hmm. it. So it, it's a strange song in that way that it is very accessible at first glance. But if you really dive deep, it is a song that asks a lot of questions. Oh, it, it's it's a Henry Miller song. Mm. I mean, someone says early in your film, one part biblical, one part the woman he slept with last night. Yep. Indeed, but- indeed. And, you know, every day, because I've been tracking Hallelujah, the word, the song, uh, Leonard Cohen on Twitter recently, every day or every other day, there are these Twitter arguments that break out over what hallelujah really means. And it just Mm -hmm. cracks me up because there isn't really one meaning. And there are people that get very up in arms about someone using it in X, Y, or Z situation. And you know what Eric Church says in the film, all of them are right. None of them are wrong. Correct. There's a great little sequence where the producer of Shrek is going to use the song, but says, I wanted to take out all the naughty verses. <laughs> and I'm like, look at the verses you left. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I, I'm sorry, senior flag on the marble arch, I don't think it's about architecture. <laughs> no, or, or about nations fighting each other. Or Correct. No, yeah. no, no, but it might just be good enough to slip by the censors. But somehow tying you to a kitchen chair was obviously naughty. Yes. Uh, What inspired you to take on this particular project? I mean, compared to the previous films you've made, the idea of just telling a life story and a story about expression itself via one song. How did this come about? 
we were having dinner with David Thompson, who's a well-regarded and well-known writer about film, film history, film criticism, and uh, just having a chat. And he mentioned the idea of writing a book about a song for himself, mm-hmm. um, and, but had thought the better of it and then wondered whether a film could be made out of a song. That's how it began, just over dinner. And Dana and I, at that point, were just sort of looking at our vegetables, moving it around, thinking, well, I don't know about that idea, until well, the light bulb went off on Dana's head. It, it really did. I, I thought, my conscious mind thought that it was really a ridiculous idea. And my subconscious mind completely grabbed onto it. And about 10 minutes into the dinner, after this idea was broached, I turned to Dan, grabbed his arm, and I said, I actually think we could do this. It would be Hallelujah, and it would be Leonard Cohen. And what prodded and just sort of arose unbidding, out, unbidden out of my subconscious was the, the very distinct image of Leonard Cohen at um, in Oakland, California, at the Paramount Theater, we got to see him twice and getting to his knees, starting Hallelujah, and carrying that song through in such an indelible, powerful, spiritual way. It kind of rocked my world. And so that image came to me whole cloth, and I turned to Dan and I said, I think we can do this. On my all-time top 10 concerts of my life, Leonard Cohen is number one and number two. That's that's sort of like the top yeah. <laughs> UK top charts where the hallelujahs <laughs> were occupying many different spots at the same time. It, it, but what was it that made Leonard himself agree to let you make this film? I think, well, a few things. We had contacted Alan Light uh, the next day after this dinner had happened, um, got hold of his book, actually, then contacted Alan. And Alan said, in the approach to Leonard through his manager, Robert Corey, don't ask for an interview. Leonard was not interested in interviews, and and that weeded out a lot of people. I think at that um, point in his life he wasn't right, right. at that point <clears> in his <throat> life. So, um, and he looked at our work. He looked at our website. Uh, Leonard did, and I think saw that we have made several films that do look at our creative process and artistic process, and. I think just it clicked for whatever reason. It clicked that he was curious about our approach, especially because we were going to look at how other people came to the song, how Brandy Carlisle came to the song, how Eric Church came to the song, and what it meant to them. So, in some ways, it was a, if Leonard had lived, it would have been an opportunity for him to explore what in the song seemed to resonate in somebody else. Right. Also, you know, <clears throat> he really appreciated Alan's book. Mm-hmm. And I think book. that yeah. had he not, then he wouldn't have entertained our our email. Um, but Alan coached us and said, you know, ask for the same kind of tacit approval that he gave me. And that's exactly, he almost wrote, a, it's not that he wrote us a script for how to approach Leonard Cohen and his manager, but um, I think had we not talked it over with Alan first and gotten some of his advice, we might not have gotten an approval so quickly. How hard was it for Leonard to write this song based on your research? There's the famous story of him and Bob Dylan at a cafe, which Leonard himself tells in the movie (laughs) about him saying it took him four years or seven years to write it. I mean, this really was something that took the poet a very long time and hundreds of different verses to get out. Um, Well, after years and years of cajoling and 
begging and showing little bits and pieces of our work to Robert Corey, who was originally Leonard's manager and now the head of the Cohen Family Trust and and sort of super supervises over the archives. Robert finally gifted us this tremendous gift, which was to allow us to look at Leonard's journals. And there's five journals that span, I want to say maybe six, six or seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, and bits and pieces of Hallelujah start appearing in the late 70s. And it starts really coming together. And then in 1984, um, you know, there's actually a journal which is headed or various positions and Book of Mercy, which was sort of this combination of a book he was work- working on at the same time that mm-hmm. he was working on the various positions album. Um, I think the number 80-ish is tossed around in terms of verses. Right. You can see them, and we show it in the film a bit. You can watch lines actually developing, um, you know, and Leonard reads them to Ratso Sloman, the journalist. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And then like Dylan, uh, he still adds new verses live after the album has been released. So the studio version is essentially an incomplete version of the song. That's true. And and when well, Sony Music just released a companion album to the, the documentary called Hallelujah and Songs from His Albums. And one of the things they have featured is a new, it was a live recording from Glastonbury. It's a beautiful performance. But that's Leonard at the end of his life yes. singing the song with a mix of verses, both the uh, King David version and the secular version. It, what I really appreciated was it seemed like it was important to you guys to establish his Jewish heritage deeply on the way to writing Hallelujah. That was pivotal and why the film takes time, especially in the first half hour, to look at his biography not as as a series of facts, but as a series of religious and spiritual influences on him. His mm-hmm. grandfather was a very well-known rabbi in Montreal. His uncles would stand beside him somewhere. Cantors, that he, he was immersed in this liturgical, biblical, uh, deep Jewish heritage. And you have to know that in order to, in my view, appreciate two things, what he was trying to accomplish in writing a song like Hallelujah, and and for that matter, many of his um, other songs, and also then the questioning that comes about in a lot of his songs, uh, this questioning of of God, of our purpose in the universe. That's very Jewish, you know, the, the, to question God. Why are you making us yeah. suffer? Why are you doing this? Oh, the Catholics do. <laughs> I was going to say we don't. We Jews don't, don't have, have a monopoly. A monopoly. <laughs> but it, but it, it, it seamlessly leads to his uh, time on Mount Baldy. Um, in the Buddhist retreat. So it all just, you know, combines for a beautiful spiritual collage. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, because he always, as, as you know, he was quite frank about the fact that he was he was on a spiritual quest. You know, Nancy Bacall, his childhood friend who then became um, the editor of his collected works, uh, and they were close all the way from the time they were teenagers through his death, you know, she says very clearly um, in the film, he was on this spiritual quest, and it took many forms. He never left Judaism, but his his quest took him up to the top of Mount Baldy as well. What I loved was how you were able to find so much footage from the 80s on TV appearances to show just how much of a disaster the album seemed to be at the time, how it wasn't released in the States, and how there really was this air commercially in the industry that Leonard in the mid-80s was just over after the Phil Spector experiment. Mm -hmm. But it seems watching it that the blockage of the album 
ultimately help the album find its audience. I guess much like Henry Miller as well. It, I would say that's that's true. It, it helped build up the myth. It helped build up the myth. It uh, Leonard suffered for quite a while from that rejection. I mean, it was extremely painful, and I know you know he dropped from his label, and he was having a very difficult time. But there is something about the you know the, the Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. In this case, uh, it didn't roll back down ultimately. You know, though I mm. wonder. That's an interesting take. I'm not sure if it ultimately helped. I, I feel like... I'm not sure either. Yeah, it's one of the many questions the film I, raises. I know. I mean, I feel like in a way, in some ways um, the the film is, is a, a big giant aha to the gatekeepers of creativity. Uh, you know, we as filmmakers, we, we get stopped by gatekeepers all the time. And, you know, Walter Yetnikoff was this very um, mercurial gatekeeper. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, even... Even Clive Davis says uh, in the film, like it's very unusual <laughs> to to let a record go all the way through to production and recording, and then just decide at the end of the day not to put it out. That just doesn't happen. After putting it out in the UK, it was just almost punitive and cruel. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it was, and that they had to find some little label in New Jersey to print a few vinyl copies that they could at least hold one or two copies in their hands. It, it was. Yeah, it was almost excessively cruel. <laughs> well, which which brings us to um, the fact that this is really a movie more than Leonard Cohen, a movie about expression itself. Mm-hmm. Did you guys come into this project with your own idea of who did the definitive version of Hallelujah? Did you have your favorite cover version before you began making this film? Because it really is all the different voices that added on to this song that made it so iconic. I didn't know half of the cover versions, if not three quarters of them, including several of them that are in the movie, in the documentary. I had no idea. I mean, the only cover version I really knew of uh, was the Jeff Buckley version. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely my gateway drug. Uh, that was mine too. Yeah, I, I, I used to listen to that album, and then I one day had a moment of like, wait a second, this is a Leonard Cohen song. I know this song. I know. <laughs> wow. Yep. Uh, you even, I'm going to start with this, you managed to somehow get Bob Dylan's never-before-released live cover into the movie, which, sh- it's always shocking to hear a Dylan song in a film, but to hear an unreleased Dylan song? Well, so you can actually find that online. There, oh, yeah, it's all over the internet. Right, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so you are able to do it? Yeah. Oh, Wow. Yeah. Here you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but it's not like it's never been heard before. Right. Um, you know, and, and he, he basically performed it in two concerts in Los Angeles and in Montreal. And both cases were times he knew that Leonard himself was in the audience. Mm. And um, I think it was his gentle way of reaching out and saying, I love this song and and spiritually supporting Leonard. Amazing. I didn't know that Dill Leonard was in the audience for yeah. it. That, that was yeah. that was that was supposed. That's the notion about why he did it on those two occasions. How did you want to approach the the Jeff Buckley chapter of the story? Because I, I admittedly, I'm, I share your bias. That was the version for me that made me take note of the song. And then, of course, the Kale version was so huge. The Katie Lang version was huge. Mm-hmm. Everyone had the Shrek soundtrack. Mm-hmm. But it really feels like, you know, you're telling the story of Hallelujah, and then Jeff Buckley shows up. And it sort of becomes its own little film in the middle of the film. How did you approach that element of the narrative? Well, it became for a while in several cuts of the film more than its own little film. <laughs> it became, it, it's so fascinating. There, we had a huge section uh, about Jeff Buckley 
Uh, and of course, Alan Light's book focuses yeah. so much on Jeff Buckley. Oh, no, I want to see your Jeff Buckley movie after this because the, you have Shanae <laughs> in here. Like I felt like I was watching my childhood in this movie. It's oh, amazing. I mean, it was. Uh, we just wound up going to the uh, the wine and spirits store where where uh, Shane Doyle was working to wow. get that interview, and he said, "Well, you know, come on over. We'll go down. We'll do it right now." But uh, I I think yeah, it it it's interesting. We we kept shaving that sequence bit by bit by bit until it felt like it told its own story but didn't take us so far afield from Leonard's story yeah. and the story of the song that we would lose the thread. But it took quite a while because the material so amazing and Jeff is so amazing. Yeah, Jeff is so charismatic <clears throat> and his tale is so tragic. Um, and in a way, the way he came to that song is so serendipitous. that we, So we needed to tell a fair amount of his story just to get to the point where miraculously he encounters this song that ultimately puts him on the map too, That's right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, but we and also... He, and he wasn't out there pounding the pavement trying to get his career and become famous at all. Exactly, at all, at all, exactly. Man. I mean, for me, one of the coups was realizing who actually inter- introduced him to the song, you know, and, and meeting Susan Feldman. At St. Anne's. At St. Mm-hmm. Anne's and um, sort of setting the record straight, like, oh, my God, it was the two of them, you know, some night when she just happened to pull out the John Cale version of Hallelujah and and off he went. Uh, but, but yeah, as Dan said, that, that section was probably early on almost twice as long as it is in the film. And, and it was a process of... Um, Painful reduction. I'm yes, sure. yes. Sure. And a lot of, you know, we, we show our work in progress to very trusted people. And so, you know, we would keep showing it and showing it and showing it until someone finally started saying, you know, wow, it feels balanced now. It feels like it is a little module about Jeff Buckley, but it's not it's not a different film. Yeah. Do you know if Leonard had an opinion on the Jeff Buckley version or the acclaim and roar that went with it? No idea. I've never heard him speak of it. No, he he didn't really. I, I mean, I think if he when he was present for an individual, like when we there's a some some video of, that you can find on YouTube of of I think it's the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame when Katie Lang sings mm-hmm. Hallelujah and he's watching and you see him crying. Probably if you had asked him then, he would have said Katie Lang's version was his favorite. Yeah. I, I I feel like depending on what he was hearing, he was always so touched at. Um, when another artist covered his work. And yet, he both at one point publicly said he thought maybe there should be a moratorium and then turned around and said, no, they should do as many as they want. I mean, I must confess, I'm really done with people thinking it's a Christmas song. Yes. I can handle every kind of American Idol massacre of that song. It's been abused by people like the National Anthem, and it's fascinating to watch, but I draw the line of people thinking it's a Christmas tune somehow. It's just <laughs> it, it doesn't. It, yeah, it kind of turns my stomach, too. But on the other hand, um, well, I don't know. I mean, so so when Leonard, we, we have that line in the film, Leonard says, you know, maybe people should stop singing it for a little while. And then Ratso's take on it is that he was kidding. Yeah. So I guess my question is, do we believe Ratso? Um, you know, I kind of tend to. Uh, I well, do think that uh, he had I, a... I, I, when Leonard says, for a little while, there's mm-hmm. the key qualifier. And Leonard never puts out words without thoughtfulness. Um, so I think yeah, he, it was a joke in part because he was a very funny man. Right. It was at the height of all those idol shows. Um, but no, that, for him to qualify it, as a little while, he knew that this song was beyond him. He knew that this song had a strong chance of um, surviving his name even, that it could go on for hundreds of years. And in fact, 
we were talking to some young person the other day, and she thought it was like Amazing Grace. It was an authorless song that has existed for hundreds of years. That's the thing, right? At some point, it doesn't belong to you anymore. Correct. Which is what Brandy Carlisle says mm-hmm. in the film. Mm-hmm. How much footage did you have when you first sat down? I heard you had like 100 hours of footage to go through in making this. Are you talking about the footage we shot? I or? mean, between, between the footage you shot and then the footage you had. Um, you know, it's... For me, it's easier to get my mind around if I think about repositories of footage. So, like, for instance, Ratso gave us 12 hours of audio tape. Um, and after sifting, you know, sifting through them and putting it together in different ways and calling it and calling it, uh, we came up with about seven minutes. Mm. So, And that's a pretty good thumbnail sketch of the way yeah. we worked with footage. Yeah. But all of the original material, the, the long interviews we did with everybody, and we let them run long. We're going to sit somebody down. We're not going to let them go. Uh, all of that is transcribed in, in digital, and it's all going into the Leonard Cohen archives and will be available for scholarly research. So we just that's the tip of the iceberg of what's in the movie and the depth with which these people that answered our questions, including his rabbi, who was his last rabbi at the end of his life. And it's fascinating in some ways uh, – it's never enough when you're putting a film together because you're always looking for that right moment from the right person. But it really, it's a treasure chest of material that we now can hand over. I also love the people you got to sit down and give give uh, commentary. I mean, Adrian Clarkson is an institution to Canadian news mm-hmm. viewers. She is like Walter Cronkite mm-hmm. over here. Mm-hmm. And it seems like everyone was very joyful to be able to come in and give their take on what this song had meant judy collins especially in town hall isn't she unbelievable unreal unreal unbelievable and i and she's been doing a couple interviews that we've seen her in already um in support of the film and she's so beautifully articulate and oh, generous yeah. uh, she just stops my heart every time she's done this show and i'm just i just drool it's ridiculous <laughs> yeah. and those eyes they're still unbelievable at 84 seductive and brilliant <laughs> yes. I, I felt in times watching this thinking in many ways your job was like leonard's in forging the song you had way too many verses you had to keep on cutting and cutting and cutting. How long did it take you both to make this film? Well, the little germ of the idea was presented to us at that dinner almost exactly eight years ago. Uh, so we first approached Leonard and Robert Corey September of 2014. And then two years to work with Sony Music Publishing to get the rights to the song in any way that a documentary filmmaker could afford. Of course. And we couldn't really shoot in those two years. Uh, we, we had to make sure we had the rights. And then... And you had to get the rights to a lot of... Different... Well, we started with Hallelujah. <laughs> we didn't quite know where we were headed that ultimately we'd have 22 other Leonard Cohen songs in the movie. We really did not know that as we started out. But in the same way, as you mentioned, that we, we had to look at his life and his biography to understand the, the spiritual quest and the, the spiritual constitution of the man, the songs had to show up too. That's right. To, to understand his preoccupation as they showed up in, in other songs. At one point, Leonard says the only way to reconcile this suffering, referring to the brokenness of everything, is to glue yourself to sanity, is uh, prayer. Yep. And um, that's all I need the song to be about. But I'm wondering, did the work on this film and the extraordinary craftsmanship that you both put into it, did it give you any spiritual insights that stayed with you? Oh, my God. Well, the whole thing was a spiritual trip. <laughs> I mean, like and, and, you know, what happened is once COVID reared its ugly little head and it became clear that it was here to stay for a while, we looked at each other and said, this film is 
I mean, call us old fashioned, but we really always dreamt of it being seen on a big screen Mm -hmm. and not just streamed. Thank you for waiting. Yeah. And um, and COVID gave us that weird little gift, which is let's just take an extra year and edit. But the other part was that with Leonard Cohen refining, refining and taking his time taking years to make his songs. Uh, we didn't feel in a rush. We were never fast with what we do, but particularly in this time of uh, great distress, but also working on something so creative, it felt like we were in the middle of the hallelujah of the brokenness and also reaching for something that was more transcendent. And, you know, because we took our time, we would show when we had a section that we felt confident about we would we would show it to Robert Corey the head of the trust and as the years went by he became more and more excited about what we were doing and more and more mm. generous um, it, yeah. and so you know had we put it out two years ago for instance we probably wouldn't have had access to all of the concert performances that Leonard did on that five-year tour. And it was a certain point. It wasn't that long before we finished where Robert said, oh, I should really introduce you to the guy who filmed all of those. And he's got this elephant, elephantine brain. Ask him for what you want. So we could say, Ed, um, do you know if Leonard's very last public performance was recorded and if he sang Hallelujah? And Ed would go, he did. He sang it. And I've got it. And we had it in two hours. It's fantastic. I mean, this is a really special movie, and you're talking to like the biggest Cohen nerd I know. <laughs> so I am telling everyone I know, and I'm telling everyone I love to see this movie. It's called Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, A Song, produced and directed by Dan Geller and Dana Goldfine. I loved your film. I'm so glad you made it. Oh, thank, thank you for being here. Thank you for thank having you. us Thank you. It's in. been fabulous to be here with you. What's the best way our listeners can keep up with all your work? Oh, gosh. Well, there's there's the website. Um, there's a Facebook page, you know, Leonard Cohen or Hallelujah Leonard Cohen, A Journey of Song, where it's updated on an hourly basis with where you could see the movie. Brilliant. Um, yeah. I can't wait to see what you both do next. Thank, thank you so you. much for being with us. Thank you. We'll be right back. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Bill in New Jersey. Thank you. Hi, John. How are you doing? Great. How are you? All right. You caught me with the frozen Reese's cups in my mouth. Anyway. Oh, my. Um, okay. <laughs> Shall I call you back uh, later? <laughs> no, nah, it's okay. I'll wait. Um, Is this a good time for you? Okay, good. John, I think when you deliver bad news, you have to start every sentence with, 
because of Citizens United. Nice. Because mm-hmm. that is the root cause behind everything that's wrong, is money. I say this money all the time. in the system. The square um, root of all of our problems is privately funded elections. Yes. Right. And the advertising works. So yeah. you put millions or billions into advertising, you can buy a population. You can buy, you know, like you, right. it's just like you buy senators. But money, um, money is speech, and some people get a lot more speech than other people. And you don't have to right. show a photo ID to buy an election just if you want to vote in one. Right. Yeah. But, right. But unfortunately, America never gets morality until after a disaster. After the Civil War, there was Reconstruction, and it was great. It was like an ideal uh, country before it got bad again. And then the Depression happened, and people realized that money is at the center of, you know, it's the love of money. It's the center of all evil. And yes. there was a middle class, and there was good stuff that came out of it. So it, it's, it's, it's sort of nasty, but... Uh, that's the way it seems to go. I think that the uh, and I think the Democrats should seize on that and call themselves the morality party or have something to do with morality because you can't argue with morality. Yeah. Family values. Yeah. Well, I think the Democrats have to just start saying not call themselves the morality party because then you're inviting yourself to call charges of hypocrisy, Mm -hmm. but saying that we are taking Mm -hmm. morality back from the hypocrites. Because I'm right. tired of the Republicans pretending that they're the Christian party. And I'm tired of waiting for the Democrats to call their phony piety out. I'm really tired of it. Because I, uh, these cloaking uh, devices have to be ripped off. They are not a party of morality or family values or fiscal responsibility or patriotism. They're a party mm-hmm. of selfish people and ignorant people. And they're a party of rich guys getting working class guys to vote for rich guys. Right. Remember, in the South, only 3% of the population owned slaves. And that's, that's how right. 10,000 people died because of that. And that's Those the racket. Down there. Look at yeah. Romney. Look at Bush. Look at Trump. The wealthy plantation mm-hmm. owners will always be mm-hmm. able to get the poor mm-hmm. and middle class white conservative guys to go fight their battles mm-hmm. for them. It's the story of the Confederacy. Uh, could, We're witnessing it still. Should you still got, be a moral person and own a billion dollars? I don't know. It's a good question. I know a lot of guys with a billion dollars think they can be. That's why we have the word philanthropy. But I think any society that allows both billionaires and poverty is a society that is not serious about lasting. We'll be right back. Let's go to Adam in Tennessee. Hello, Adam. Welcome. Good evening, John. Hi. I, I didn't expect to get this quick, so I haven't had time to like oh. collate my entire thoughts. Um, but okay, well, I'm um, here to help. First of all, I just want to say, first of all, you are someone I genuinely look up to and respect. I've had the privilege of meeting you twice at sexy liberal shows, and you oh, were the one you. I sought out. I, I oh, you know, thank you. Um, but I, I've heard a couple people, and I only I've only been able to listen to bits and pieces because I've been out and about. But I've heard people mention, you know, red states possibly seceding and whatnot, but. I think it's time we put a national divorce on the table. <laughs> no, no. Why? Tell me why. Because there, because conservatism is fundamentally incompatible with small D democracy. 
It's like yeah. calling a spade a spade. You know, they're fascists. They I don't know. What, I don't know what conservatism means anymore. I can't even comment because I don't even know what conservative means anymore in this country. But like I said, the red states, they don't want to be one. They don't want to hang out with us. You know, sometimes the adult thing to do is just say, I can't live with you. Get out of my house. Yeah, but the problem with that is if you look at these maps, you'll see that all of these red states have big, powerful patches of blue. You know, just like all of the red blue states have these big, wide acreages of red. If you look at our country, we are purple. And and again, our our commonalities do outweigh our differences. I can hate what they're doing without hating them. And we're never going to have this kind of secession because you know what would happen. They would be Somalia. They would be cannibalizing each other within a year. I mean, I, I do a whole bit about this. I have a whole YouTube video uh, about Whiteopia, where where go ahead and let two states secede. We'll take in Puerto Rico and D.C. and keep the same stars on our flag and just let us set up cameras because they want to secede and have Donald Trump be ruler for life and have no abortion, all the drugs you want, all the guns you want. I'm like, let us film it. You can go ahead and go. Let us just put it on pay-per-view because you know that if they did secede, Within two years, there'd be refugees from Whiteopia at our border demanding asylum to get right. away from this so libertarian hellhole they had created. So. That's we when we say, you oh, so. you want asylum? Go to your neighbor, Mexico. It's right that way. Like I, it's just like you said, there's so, such a fundamental incompatibility. And again, the Supreme Court, they look at 50 years of bombings and assassinations say, we're going to reward that behavior. That yep. alone shows how incompatible this we can't this country cannot exist as it is anymore. I just, I'm sorry. I, I, I appreciate what you're saying. I don't see it happening. There's just I know, but this is this is the problem. Risk. I don't see how you can separate. This is what America is. America is a set of conjoined twins. OK, we are two conjoined twins and we can't be separated. The problem is only one of the twins has a brain. And the twin that doesn't have a brain keeps punching the twin that has a brain in the face. And we can't well, be separated. See, I, yeah. And that's this guy. And, and we I have think, a brainless oh, conjoined sorry. twin smacking us in the face because we have brains. And that's what it's like living in this country. Yeah, well, I mean, I think on that part of it is we also tend to fight with honor. We fight. We play yes. by rules. And well, we try to not it. be horrible, selfish douchebags, I think, is what you're looking for. Right. Yeah. But the thing, but the thing is, is that they're they're punching us in the balls, and we're like, please don't hit me. That's not how you stop a bully. You stop Correct. a bully by blowing up your fist and taking one. It only takes one swing. And that's, that's it. what it's I keep over. telling Joe Biden in my in my in my seances every night. That's what I keep telling him. I mean, you, you know, like start nominating Supreme Court justices and packing the court now. FDR did it just to scare them, and it worked. I really want to see a president that stops being a human pinata and starts taking the fight to these people. Adam, thank you so much for your call. Call more often, please. Really a pleasure to have you. Have a great fourth.